guide us through this passage, Lord, um, that your spirit would illuminate it and that your spirit would help our hearts to understand the word, that we would not uh, look at the, the, the Bible uh, the way that we did in our natural state before we knew you, before you saved us and you changed our hearts and our lives from the inside out. I pray, God, that we would see it with spiritual eyes and that we would hear it with spiritual ears, Lord, uh, able to understand uh, the things that you have revealed to us so that we could draw closer to you, so that we could live this life for you and glorify you. And uh, Father, I pray that we would have a right position when it comes to your word, that we would not try to stand above it or, or beside it, but that we would uh, submit ourselves below it, understanding that it has ultimate authority over our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You think about everything that we let sway our emotions. Uh, certainly, there are lots of things that turn our heads pretty easily. We turn on the news and the headlines just twist us into pretzels, masks and taxes and vaccines and foreign policy. All this stuff gets us worked up. Um, Complaining is a sin, right? Uh, it's one that God takes seriously. Uh, he condemned thousands of people to death at one time in the Old Testament uh, because of their sin of grumbling and complaining against the Lord. And yet, uh, as Christians, we engage in it far too often. 24-hour news, television, and social media have turned American Christians into the grumbling Israelites in the wilderness. Uh, I'm not exempt. I get sucked into it. I think particularly during COVID, I found myself, you know, the, the lockdown was, was so intense, uh, March, April 2020, uh, and then in May we got to come back to church, and it just seems like every month since then, things have relaxed and we've been able to get back and recover things that we missed, and yet, like, I will have people come to me sometimes, and I'm like, you know, I heard, uh, I've got a cousin whose brother's girlfriend uh, knows an intern down at the governor's office, and they heard that masks are coming back, you know, November 1st or something like that. And I'll hear something like that, and just hearing that will make me feel like the walls are starting to close in again, and I will get anxious. And uh, this happened uh, about a month ago. I have a friend that works for VDOT, and even though he's vaccinated, they came in one day and basically put a mask in front of him and said, you got to wear it uh, regardless of whether you're vaccinated or not. And he told me that news, and it made me anxious for him. And uh, I just found that I was really irritable the whole day, and I didn't really know why. And then at the end of the day, I looked back, and I was like, it was, it was that. It was that feeling again that, hey, you know, uh, these restrictions might be coming back, and those walls might be closing in again. And as I sat there and really thought about how I let my emotions be swayed by that so easily for eight, nine hours, I thought, well, that's pretty silly. That's pretty silly. I'm not saying that things like uh, COVID restrictions and taxes and vaccines and foreign policy doesn't matter, but man, they shouldn't consume us, should they? Or how about the things we find too much joy in? Like, I'm a huge sports fan. I, I think sports is a great hobby. It's fun to watch games, root for your teams, talk to other people about it. You watch normal people on TV. They're just like you, except they can do these extraordinary things. I think it's a, it's a fun thing to participate in. But there have been times where I'm so overjoyed at my team winning uh, that I have to stop and really ask myself, say, Lord, when's the last time that I was rejoicing in you like this? 
Like, how can hearts that know the Lord Jesus get so easily distracted? How do we get our heads turned with so little resistance? I, I think it's because often we lose perspective on who Jesus is. Our familiarity with him causes us to lose awe. Keith and Kristen Getty have a song called Don't Let Me Lose My Wonder, and there's this verse in it. It says, I knew your voice upon the hill and heard my lostness still. I found my home in the light where wrong was made right, and you rose as the morning star. Don't let me lose my wonder. We lose our wonder. We lose our wonder, and then our fickle hearts get so easily distracted and distressed and frustrated, and we make golden calves, and we give them the worth that only God deserves. And so I hope this is a passage this morning that will get our attention back on Jesus. That's simple. Uh, His character is put on display in this passage, and we see the Savior who's filled with love, but at the same time filled with righteous justice and also filled with uh, courage and bravery all at once. And what, what scriptures like this do for us is they woo us, they draw us in, and they recalibrate our affections to uh, be poured out on the Lord. Uh, he is the central figure of all of history and the central figure of the scriptures, and he must be the central figure of our lives. So uh, we're going to be in Luke 13 this morning, verses 31 through 35, looking at the character of Christ in this passage. Last week we saw Jesus traveling throughout the towns and the villages, and he's headed toward Jerusalem, and he responds to a question about who is being saved and how many, and he taught about the narrow door. And in this week's passage, uh, we have uh, it picking up right where we left off. It it says in verse 31, at that very hour, which tells us that uh, he is teaching and he must have been interrupted by the strange warning from the Pharisees. And so that's where we're at. So I'll read for us uh, Luke 13, starting in verse 31. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons, and I perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's three aspects to Jesus' character in this passage this morning, and again, I, I hope these aspects will draw us in to love him more and more. The first one is this, is that Jesus is courageous. In the first few verses, we see Jesus dealing with two different enemies. You have the Pharisees and you have Herod. Uh, Some background on each one of these so we can understand why the situation is so precarious for Jesus. Jesus tangles with the Pharisees often in the book of Luke, right? It's been well documented by uh, the Dr. Luke throughout uh, the gospel here. Uh, The Pharisees oddly enough, had a lot in common with Jesus theologically. They believed in the resurrection, just like Jesus. 
They believed in angels and demons like Jesus. They believed in uh, the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures and that they were uh, inspired and given by God. These are all things that Jesus also uh, believed. And the Sadducees, on the other hand, uh, who were the religious elite who were really in charge of the temple, the Sadducees did not believe these things. They were uh, spiritual liberals. They rejected these things. And so uh, Jesus had a lot in common with the Pharisees, but the Pharisees' practice and application of their doctrine was all wrong. It included a lot of man-made laws, a lot of external religion. It, It had a whole lot more to do with outward appearance what you put out on display for others, than the heart which the Lord sees. And as Jesus gained the favor of the people, he, began, he, he was a, a threat to their power grip on religious leadership. And they would have none of this. And so they became his biggest critics, and they opposed him. And the most obvious deep divide between Jesus and the Pharisees probably is found in Luke 11, Uh, If you remember, Jesus goes to that lunch party and he pronounces three woes on the Pharisees and then three woes on their buddies, the scribes. And after he does that, Luke says, as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard, provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. So they want to catch him in saying something wrong so they can then bring him to trial, uh, probably before the Sanhedrin, which was a council of ruling elders, and then condemn him to death and then to have him killed. They are out to murder Jesus. This is what they want to do at this point. And so in Luke 13, verse 31, you have the Pharisees who are trying to trap him and ultimately uh, bring him to his death, they come to him and they say, you need to run because Herod wants to kill you. The Herod being talked about here is Herod Antipas. He was the son of Herod the Great. The Jewish people under Roman rule wanted their own king. They wanted a king that they could call their own, a king uh, in, the, in the model, in the fashion of David. They don't want to be ruled by Caesar. And so Rome said, okay, you want a king, we'll give you a king. But of course, it wasn't a king like David at all. It was a puppet king uh, who just did whatever the Romans told him to do. And so the Jewish people saw straight through it. They never had any respect for uh, the Herodian dynasty or any of the, the puppet Herod kings. They were all in Rome's pocket. The Jewish people knew it. They never trusted any of the Herods. Herod the Great is the sociopathic madman who tried to have Jesus murdered as an infant. Uh, if you remember in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13, it says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So Herod the Great was crazy. He was paranoid. 
Um, he was sick, he was evil, and he was willing to slaughter little children for the sake of keeping uh, this little amount of power that Rome had given him. When he died, his kingdom was divided between his three kids. Archelaus got Judea and Samaria. Uh, his son Philip got uh, a couple of other areas. And then Herod Antipas, who we're talking about here in this passage, he got Galilee and uh, Perea. When it comes to Herod Antipas, the apple did not fall far from the tree. He was also paranoid, and he was also evil. John the Baptist publicly rebuked Herod Antipas because he had had an affair with his brother's wife and actually stole his brother's wife away. So he stole his brother Philip's wife away, and when John publicly rebuked him, he put John in prison for it. Now, his wife, the one that he stole away from his brother, her name was Herodias. She didn't like the fact that John had called them out on their sin, and so she wanted John dead. But Herod didn't want to kill him because he feared the people. The people loved John the Baptist, and he feared that they might revolt, and they might try to string him up if he was to kill John. But in the end, she dupes him into killing John. Matthew 14 but when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, also weird, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother and his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Herodias, classy gal, right? Steps out on her husband with her husband's brother, and then uh, has her daughter do a little dance to please all of these men. Uh, and then once John the Baptist is murdered, gives his severed head to, his, uh, to her daughter on a plate to take to the king. We're not told why Herod wants to kill Jesus, but the whole thing here is strange. The Pharisees, who also want to kill Jesus, are warning Jesus that Herod wants to kill Jesus. Okay, so this is odd, but we can get to the bottom of this. Maybe Herod wants to kill Jesus because he's paranoid like his father was, and he thought Jesus was coming for his little puppet throne. Maybe he got wind that Jesus was talking a lot about being a king and the kingdom. Maybe he was worried that Jesus' movement was getting out of control. And for the sake of keeping the peace and keeping the Romans pacified, he needed to squelch it out. But regardless, why are the Pharisees warning him? Shouldn't they want Jesus dead as well? I mean, if Herod kills him, why do they care? Well, they probably have an end game uh, like this. Herod has already been politically hurt by killing John the Baptist. That didn't sit well with the people. He wants Jesus dead. He doesn't want to be the one to get the blood on his hands. If he can get the Pharisees to pass on the threat to Jesus, maybe Jesus gets scared and he goes south to Judea. And the Pharisees like this idea. 
They like this idea because, A, they don't really like Herod either and probably don't trust him to carry this task out, or maybe they don't want him to get the credit. But they also like this idea because if Jesus runs to the south, then he enters into the region where the Sanhedrin, that ruling council they talked about, has authority, and they can get him and bring him to trial before the Sanhedrin. They want Jesus down in their territory so they could trap him and they could kill him. And then everybody wins. Herod gets Jesus killed without the blame. The Pharisees get Jesus into their court. So how does Jesus respond to this little scheme? Well, in verse 32, he tells them to go and tell Herod that he is going to cast out demons and he is going to perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day he will finish his course. And he calls him a fox. Now, you might be like, that's kind of an odd thing to call somebody. You might not be, be very offended by the idea of being called a fox. In fact, you might think of somebody like, if you were in traffic and you cut somebody off on accident, I know you'd never do it on purpose, and they pulled up beside you, rolled down the window, and go, hey, you're a fox, and then they took off, you would probably just laugh at that, right? You'd be like, I'm a fox. Like, what was that? You know, I, I expected maybe to see one of the five fingers uh, on that person's hand come up at me, but I did not expect them to call me a fox. That's just silly. But it was not silly in Jesus' day. To be called a fox, man, that was derogatory. Uh, it's the only time you see Jesus call someone this. Foxes are cunning, they are sneaky, and they're destructive. They would come into vineyards, and they would come into farmlands, and they would destroy them. And it's the modern-day equivalent of calling somebody a rat. Now that resonates with you, right? Like, a, if somebody called you a rat, you'd be like, a rat? You call me a rat? Right? Like, you would be offended by that um, because... When you think of a rat, you think of a sneaky liar, someone who is destructive and kind of goes around behind people's backs and causes damage. And that's exactly what Jesus means here. That's exactly what he means when he's talking about Herod. Herod was a supposed king, but he's, he's no royal lion. He's a sneaky little pest. He'd slipped into Israel's fields. He was causing destruction. He wasn't really a threat he could be dealt with, but he was an annoying pesky nuisance. Some people have actually throughout history accused Jesus of breaking Mosaic law because he calls Herod a fox, because Exodus 22 forbids speaking evil of a ruler. But there seems to be an exception for prophets who speak directly for God. Isaiah called the rulers of Israel rebels and thieves. Ezekiel called Israel's princes wolves. Hosea called the rulers of Israel adulterers. And so if the prophets who speak directly for God have a right to use words like that, well then God in the flesh certainly has a right to use the word fox when referring to Herod. And he tells the Pharisees to let Herod know he's going to cast out demons and he's going to heal today and tomorrow and then on the third day he will finish his course. That phrase, today, tomorrow, and the third day, which Jesus says twice here in this passage, uh, in verse 33, he says it again in, in a little bit of a different way. I must go on my way today, tomorrow, and the day following, or the third day. Uh, this was a phrase used to express completion. Like you might say, today and tomorrow and the third day, I will get the laundry done. It means I'm going to do this at my pace, the pace that I plan to do it, and when I finish, and I will finish, it will be complete. So Jesus is going to keep doing what he's been doing. That's what he's telling them. 
I'm going to keep doing my Father's will. I'm going to do every single bit of the ministry my Father has called me to do. I'm going to go and die on the cross. I'm going to rise from the grave. I will complete the work of redemption. Herod can't stop it. Herod can't speed it up. It's not in his control. He's a pesky little fox. Go let him know that the royal sovereign lion named Jesus is going to work at the Father's pace and not at Herod's pace. Herod has no jurisdiction here. But Jesus also has something to say to the Pharisees. He sees right through their little plan. And again, he tells them, I must go on my way today, tomorrow, and the day following. And then here he is speaking with his tongue firmly pressed into his cheek. Again, if you've ever wondered if sarcasm can be righteous, here's some holy sarcasm from Jesus. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Herod will not decide where Jesus is going to die, and neither will the Pharisees, and neither will the Sanhedrin. He's going to die in the only place that makes sense for him to die, and that is Jerusalem. Partly because that's where the temple is, so it makes sense for the final sacrifice for sin uh, to take place uh, in the city where the temple is, but also because of the ironic reality that Jerusalem, the center of Jewish worship, is also the place where God's prophets went to die. Tradition tells us that Manasseh took Isaiah and he put him in a hollow log and then he sawed him in two. 2 Chronicles 24 shows us how Zechariah was stoned to death in the temple court. Jesus is going to die on his father's timetable, not Herod's, not the Pharisees, and he's going to die in the only appropriate place, Jerusalem, the home of the temple, but also the place where the ground is soaked in the blood of the prophets. And the puppet king is not in control of that. And the rulers of the synagogue are not in control of that. The Lord of the universe is in control of that. In seeing how Jesus stares down his enemies, what we're getting here is a picture of human courage and human bravery that transcends any other example that we have ever been given. He is 100% God, and he is also 100% man. And his flat-out human courage as he purposely and intentionally marches toward his death in Jerusalem is astounding. Think about Genesis 22 and little Isaac walking up Mount Moriah with his dad. Abraham has faith in that passage that God will provide a sacrifice. He says that. But Isaiah walks up that mount without full knowledge of exactly what is going on. And once they reached the top of the mountain, it must have been increasingly terrifying until the moment where Abraham's hand was stayed and the ram appeared in the thicket. But as he trekked toward the peak, he didn't really understand what was happening. The difference with the Son of God as opposed to the Son of Abraham is that Jesus did know what was happening. He knew that he was born to die. He knew he was headed for slaughter in Jerusalem. And he just kept walking toward the gallows of the cross. Remember in Luke 9, verse 51, Luke says that Jesus turned his face toward Jerusalem. He set his face toward Jerusalem. He does that and then he just plods toward Jerusalem, continuing to do the will of the Father, knowing that with every step he is getting closer to a sinner's death that you and I deserve, that he did not deserve, but that he would suffer and die uh, for in our place. I have a few heroes in this world. My dad is a massive hero of mine. John MacArthur is a hero of mine. 
My buddy and friend and mentor, David Bounds, who's a pastor to so many pastors here on the peninsula, is a hero of mine. And then I have heroes of much lesser feats, like Steven Gerrard, who used to play for Liverpool, or Daryl Green, who played for Washington back in the day, sports heroes and whatnot. And I'm sure you have your own heroes, both uh, heroes that are really important to you and heroes of the lesser degree. But there is no one who comes close to the bravery and the courage of our Jesus. No one. He stared down his enemies. He stared down the cross. He stared down Satan himself. And for the sake of the Father's glory and our salvation, he never wavered. He pressed on, and He is the hero of our hearts. He is the champion of our salvation. And every time that you need a picture of bravery to push back against the darkness in this world, you don't need to look any further than the light of our heroic Savior. Jesus is courageous. Number two, in this passage we seem that Jesus is condemning. Now that sounds odd for me to say. It's not a word that you maybe like to associate with Jesus, but condemnation is not bad if condemnation is rightful, right? If you run around condemning people who uh, don't deserve to be condemned, you run around doing that with a, a, a plank hanging out of your eye, that's not great, right? You look like a hypocrite, but if you condemn that which deserves to be condemned, that is righteous, and Jesus always reserved his condemnation for that which deserved to be condemned. So often when we speak of Jesus, we speak of Him in the context of His saving power, which is great, and we should, but He is both a Messiah of salvation and justice. He is the slain Lamb who conquers on behalf of His people. He's also the Lion of Judah who decimates evil at every level, and He makes all things right in the end. And He issues a strong warning to Jerusalem here about the coming condemnation for the city. In verse 35, he says, Behold, your house is forsaken. I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. But Jesus was issuing a prophecy here warning about the condemnation that awaited Jerusalem in just a few decades. Between the years of 68 to 70 AD, the Romans laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. They trapped thousands upon thousands of Jewish people in the city. And they starved them out. They, they uh, kept water from them. All the basic things that they would need to live. The streets filled up with corpses. Women climbed onto the roofs with their babies just trying to keep them away from the decaying bodies. The historian Josephus said people wandered through the streets and they were swollen from starvation and thirst. Uh, Josephus said they roamed like phantoms through the marketplaces and collapsed wherever their doom overtook them. It got to the point where they couldn't bury all the bodies within the walls, and so they started to toss them over the walls. And the the mournful silence that had set over the city, uh, Josephus said it was only broken when you would hear robbers and thieves outside the walls laughing as they stripped the bodies of their possessions. The temple was destroyed, and it felt like hope was lost. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it was buried underneath God's judgment for their sin. Josephus tells us that a million people died during this time and almost 
100,000 were taken captive by Rome. For the sake of time, I, I won't go much further here other than to say God will not be mocked and a man will reap what he sows. Sin has consequences. And if we believe God is good, then we believe that God will bring all sin and those committed into His courtroom and they will be sentenced for their cosmic crimes against a just and holy God. And just as Jesus foretold of the condemnation of Jerusalem, He similarly warned of the eternal condemnation reserved for anybody who would reject the Messiah in the way that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious elite and the people of the city rejected the Messiah. Just last week, we saw him warning people that they would be sent away because they are workers of iniquity. Remember what he said, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. Christopher Love was a Welsh Presbyterian preacher during the 1600s. And he gives two reasons for why there must be a hell. One, he says, is because of the filthy nature of sin. Hell is a logical conclusion for the evil of sin. But there also must be a hell because there must be justice for that sin. And if it is not dealt with by Christ at the cross in His death, then the sinner will receive that justice for eternity. The Bible describes hell as an unquenchable fire, a furnace of fire, a lake of fire, eternal fire, outer darkness, darkness forever, a prison, a bottomless pit, everlasting punishment. Go to Christopher Love again. He described it like this, a place of torment ordained by God for devils and reprobate sinners, wherein by His justice He confines them to everlasting punishment. What took place in Jerusalem in 70 A.D. at the hands of the Romans is nothing compared to the terrors of hell. But this place ordained by God does not exist because God is mean and, 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 and because He's unloving. It does not exist because He's unfair. Exists because he's good. He is just. He is holy. It is his justice and it is his goodness that brings sin and sinners who commit sin into his courtroom for sentencing. And Jesus is warning us of a condemnation that we we never want to feel because we are making the grave mistake of rejecting him, like all the generations who rejected and killed the prophets in Jerusalem. So much grave concern for every soul that does not know the Lord. You know, that's why we're going to do some of the things that we're doing that I talked about earlier. We're going to pop our trunks out here and serve candy out of it. You know, that, that, that seems to the community just like, well, the, the church here, they just, they love us and we do, right? They're just trying to be kind to us and, and, and give us free stuff. And, and all of that is true, but there's, there's an end game for us, isn't there? And the end game is not because, well, we want a church with bigger numbers. We want to be able to pat ourselves on the back and say, look how our church is growing. 
So we want the church to grow, sure, but there's a much bigger end game uh, than that. It, it's seeing souls that were destined for hell be rerouted by the grace of a merciful and loving God who died for them on the cross, be rerouted to glory, to see souls that were uh, going to be spending eternity in outer darkness now to be brought into relationship and fellowship with Jesus, to see people reconciled to God, which is their only hope for eternal life. That's the end game. We hand out Jolly Ranchers out of a trunk because we're hoping that people will A, maybe pick up a gospel track and read it that night and come to know Christ and it'll be that quick, or B, we earn their trust that they would keep coming back over months and maybe even years to hear the gospel again and again until finally we pray that they will reach the end of their rope and say, I don't want to live in this brokenness anymore. And they'll remember those nice people who handed them to Jolly Ranchers and had a basketball league and kept telling them about how glorious this Jesus is and about how he was their only hope. Grave concern for every soul that doesn't know him. We all have it. We all should have it. And so we reach out to them. But listen, on the other side of that, we have to say we are thankful that God does not just let evil go unchecked. If you love justice... While you may grieve the idea of people being separated from God for all of eternity, you should not grieve the idea of God condemning sin. It is good that He is a good judge who confronts and conquers sin and then confines it to the place it deserves to be for all of eternity. But it's not an arbitrary thing. It's something that we have committed. And this condemnation and this hell we've talked about is something we deserve. And so we praise Jesus for His condemnation of sin, but we also know we don't want to end up there. You must repent of your sin and put your trust in Jesus and not reject Him the way that the Pharisees did and that Herod did and that so many in Jerusalem did. Let's keep going here. He is courageous. He is condemning. He is compassionate. I'm thankful the text doesn't end there and the sermon doesn't end there. It would be a tough way to go out this morning. Look how Jesus also talks about Jerusalem in this passage in verse 34. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together the hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. He expresses this desire to gather Jerusalem up and it gives you uh, an image of a mother bird in the nest, right? You don't need a seminary degree for that. If you read this, even if you've never read the Bible before, when he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. You, You see it, right? You see that mother bird gathering her chicks under her wings. The Bible talks about God in this way many times. In in Deuteronomy 32, uh, verse 10, He found him in a desert land, and in the howling waste of the wilderness, He encircled him, He cared for him, He kept him as the apple of His eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The psalmists love to talk about God this way. Psalm 17, verse 8, Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. 
Psalm 36, verse 7, How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 57, verse 1, In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. Psalm 61, 63, 91, they all use the same language. And what it shows us is the compassion of God, and what it shows us here is the compassion of Jesus. Jerusalem is the place where Jesus will stretch out His arms and die, but He longs to stretch out His compassionate, protective care and give the people shelter and warmth and safety. We've seen the warnings of condemnation. But understand this morning that as just as Jesus is, He's just as tender. Thomas Goodwin said this about Jesus, Your very sins move Him to pity more than to anger. Even as the heart of a father is to a child that hath some loathsome disease, or as one is to a member of his body that hath the leprosy, he hates not the member, for it is his flesh, but the disease, and that provokes him to pity the part affected the more. So if if you had leprosy on your arm, you would loathe the disease, but you would pity your arm. Look at my poor arm. Christ is just and He hates our sin, but He pities the sinner as a mother bird pities her babies. He wants to gather sinners up and He wants to reconcile them to His Father through His spilt blood. Verse 35, Jesus says, And I tell you, you will not see Me until you say, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Some people think this is referring to the triumphal entry, but Matthew actually places this quote after that event. So instead, it's probably referring to the fact that Jesus is going to return. And when He does, despite the rejection that we see in Jerusalem here in the book of Luke, when He returns, there's going to be a remnant of Israel that is believing. In fact, throughout all of history, there's always been a remnant of Jewish people who are believing. How many will there be in the end? I don't know. I also don't know how many Gentiles there's going to be believing in the end. But I think the Scriptures certainly indicate a bit of a spiritual revival among the Jewish people in the end, regardless of your view on the book of Revelation and and your take on it. Despite the sins of Jerusalem, God has not given up on the Jewish people. He's compassionate and He will save the Jew and the Gentile and He will make them one church formed by His extravagant love. He's courageous, He's condemning, and He is compassionate. It's just three aspects of His character this morning. That's all we have time for, and that's what the text gives us. But you hold it up to the light like a diamond, and it just shows off its beauty. The character of Christ shows off the beauty of God in Christ. Brave and righteous, Tender, like a mother bird towards sinners. I don't care how bad you think the president is, how upset you are about mandates, how worked up you are about whatever you have going on in your life. A lot of things which, as Carol prayed earlier, if we really stop and get some perspective, are a bit silly. No matter how upset you might be, how can we be consumed by it when we have a Jesus like this? 
How can we let it overtake our minds and our hearts? On the other hand, I don't care how happy you are by some good fortune that has fallen upon you in this world, how can you let it eclipse the greatness of who Jesus is? But we do. What we need is our perspective to be corrected by a good dose of Jesus' word because in the pages of the Scripture, we see the character of the three-in-one and the one-in-three. The glorious and giving Father, the brave, just, saving Son, the truth-testifying Spirit who gives us life. When our eyes are on Him, our complaints burn up like grass under a hot sun. Our glories are nailed to Calvary and traded in for something better. Our worries go from mountains to anthills. Our victories go from pearls to sand. Because He's bigger and He's better and He's more worthy than we ever dreamed of. And He changes how we see things and He changes how we react to things. And I hope you know Him. Because what we've seen this morning is He has gone to great lengths to know us. He wants to know us. And there are devastating consequences in the end if He does not know us. Let's not lose our wonder. Worship team is going to come back up and we're going to pray. If you want to know Jesus, if you are uh, thinking a lot about your relationship with Him and about where you stand with Him and, and you want to not reject Him, but to turn away from your sin and to put your trust in Him for salvation, then uh, I want to encourage you to reach out to us. You can text us at connect at seafordbaptist.com or you can email us uh, at that address and we will get back in touch with you to answer any questions you may have. Uh, but also, after the service today, I'll be in the lobby. Pastor David and Pastor Ben would be around and we would love to speak to you and talk to you about how to have a relationship with Jesus. Um, this, this compassionate, uh, courageous just Savior that we love. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for your Son. I want to, Lord, recover my wonder about Him. And I know there's got to be others here who want to do the same. I remember being 14 years old. I'd known, I'd known your Son for a week, Lord. I had been a Christian for a week, sitting in Myrtle Beach, reading my Bible, and just thinking, I can't believe how amazing this God is. How amazing the Savior is. Reading the book of John and just being amazed by Jesus again and again. Lord, we can get so familiar after having been Christians for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, some in this room more, that we might lose our wonder a little bit. We might lose touch with the character of your son. Don't let us do it. That's when we get twisted up like pretzels by the headlines. That's when we start rejoicing too much in things that don't really matter. God, give us perspective this morning. Let us see the character of your son. Let us be in wonder and in awe over it. And then may that translate, Lord, into uh, holy living for us where we are devoted to him and we are glorifying him with every step as your workmanship. We ask you to answer this prayer, Lord, for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.